Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi there. You're listening to the Carrero Podcast. I'm Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Anupama Zoshi. Anupama is a professor of childhood development at California State University, Dominguez Hills. She's a member of the higher education faculty for over 20 years and briefly served in higher ed administration. As a researcher, she is most interested in understanding how our knowledge about children's development is shaped and how we study it. Her broad area of interest is social development. Anupama, thank you so much for sharing um, your experiences with us today and being with us. Can you share with us what your experiences in India were like as a young child going to school? Um, Yes, Uh, let me preface all my remarks with this uh, stage setting statement, and that is, um, I loved school. Uh, in fact, I love school so much, I've been in it my whole life. So that, that tells you, um, uh, you know, that kind of uh, began right when I was a young kid. And um, so school was one of my favorite context. Uh, I look forward to going to school, meeting my friends. Um, and I, I grew up in a pretty well-educated family. Uh, and so that only kind of fed into all the positive vibes towards school, if you will. Um, and, and to set a bigger context, I also grew up in a city that was known as the cultural capital of the state. And um, uh, it had the National Defense Academy, so anybody who wanted to go into uh, the military, any branch of the military, really started their education there. So people from all over the India came there. Um, we, it had the National Chemical Laboratory, uh, the lab, uh, and uh, it also had the National Film and Television Institute. So there were a lot of these educational institutions in in the city that I grew up in, and. So that only kind of stimulated that whole kind of uh, attitude towards education. That's something, um, something to look forward to. Um, but I remember my preschool teacher 
uh, and uh, wow. uh, the curriculum we followed was a Montessori uh, curriculum. And um, uh, then, you know, when when I went to first second grade, uh, it, it changed, of course, completely. Uh, and it, it, um, our schools were uh, the school I attended had a fairly uh, academic focus. So, um, you know, and that's kind of hard to get away from in India where, you know, which has a huge population and uh, there are so many people vying for so few seats in colleges. Uh, you really do, if you wanted any sort of opportunity in life, uh, you really had to do well at school. Um, uh, and we, the class sizes were large. They, we had about 60 students in the class. Wow. Yeah, I know. Now I have this compassion for my teachers. Um, but it also had a very different feel because there were cultural differences in how we saw the role of teachers and students in, in the classroom. And um, there would be pretty much pin drop silence. They, it wasn't... Uh, uh, you know, classroom control was not something that you had to learn. It, it was just sort of inbuilt into how we were socialized for school, that, you know, you do have to, your part is to listen and uh, um, follow what's happening. Um, I wouldn't say that I would necessarily encourage it in children uh, now that I think about it, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't have a problem with it personally because um uh, I loved school and I liked thinking and I liked problem solving and I was such a geek right from the beginning. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it is true, you know. Uh, I, so, um, and then we went to school, uh, some years I went to school uh, uh, by riding the school bus uh, uh, and school buses were owned by the school. So they had the school colors on it and the school name on it. Um, and... Um, you know, first through third grade is kind of a blur because it was too long time ago. Um, and uh, but I was sort of a low key student. I mean, a low key person, if you will. I uh, just kind of sat back, looked at what was happening. Like you know, have uh, just uh, two or three very close friends. Um, uh, not necessarily a high profile kid uh, for a while. And then it was really in eighth grade that things picked up for me in school um, because somehow uh, just things became interesting and the material that we were studying um, actually sort of connected much more. Uh, So that, and I attended a Catholic school, uh, even though I was raised a Hindu at home. Uh, I grew up bilingual. And I spoke English at school and Marathi at home. Um, and I just remember it as a very, very charmed time, uh, you know, surrounded by people who, who, who cared about us and also taking in all of the love that comes with collectivism. You know, there's just so many people taking care of you, your uncles, your aunts. And um, it was also a time which was different because uh, children's world was 
completely different than grown-ups' world. And people, you know, your parents and adults around you didn't really share. They didn't loop you into what was happening. So it was kind of like this protected space. Um, and that, I think that kind of contributed to the charmed feeling of it. Um, I think collectivism works really well in childhood, for children at least. Yeah, so now you, um, so you grew up in a collectivist like society and now you're living in the States and more of individualistic. Um, do you find like your personal experiences being conflicted and, and like struggling with how to balance those two things? Um, so I, uh, I was an individualist growing up in a collectivist culture mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and interestingly, research is now showing us that India is especially can be described as a mix of collectivist, individualist, uh, you know, approaches, if you will, um, But my, you know, when I first came to the United States, uh, I probably, my experience is similar to voluntary immigrants who want to be in the United States and which is, you know, you you just feel culturally naked because you have no means of connecting. Uh, But I will tell you, I will not, I would not give that experience up for anything. I would not exchange that for anything else. Uh, it, It really, gives you an insight into just being the human being and what it what is really real and absolute about you. And you you realize that so much is just bells and whistles. So much is just symbolism. Um, and then what it does also is that it forces you to look for what is common with people around you. Um, so for me, you know, and then the other thing too is that I think the way we talk about culture and bicultural identities uh, doesn't really capture the nature of it. So, for example, you know, people think that some of you might be Indian and some of you is American, and that's not how how it works. So like, you know, if so, for example, if I was to um, uh, symbolize uh, Indian culture with the color blue and uh, American culture with the yellow color yellow. So let's say I, I came to the United States and it was all blue culturally, you know, my identity. Um, and then, you know, this, as you, you are culturally what you practice, you know, you, you, visiting cultures doesn't really make you that person. So, if, you know, the more you start practicing something and kind of including it in the way you think about the world, uh, you kind of start tra- the transformation. And so it's like the yellow kind of big, there's a drop of yellow and it all changes and it, it kind of permeates into the blue. Um, and so the bicultural identity is not part blue and part yellow, but it's really green. It's, it's a whole sort of a, mm-hmm. a category in and of itself. And um, and that's hard to describe because you don't kind of separate it. You, you really change qualitatively as a person. Yeah. Actually, I think you described it really well with the way that you described the colors. That was very uh, 
very like I can picture it in my mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, a lot of my a lot of my friends who were who were born in in India, they 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 often shared that growing up, they they had opportunities to look at different different places to go to school. Um, if it was um, if if it was going to the UK or the um, or the um, US. Why, why, why did you wish to come here? And did you, and did you wish to go other places? Um, no, it was always the United States. Um, I had conflicting feelings about the UK because we were colonized by uh, the British, um, and I wasn't really sure. So there, there was some struggle there, probably. But I really did not think of the UK. To me, it was always the United States. And um, there were things that the US offered that I was wanting to get away from, if you will. Um, so I was growing up in a very traditional culture. And wow. okay. that did not fit for me a whole lot because traditions are one thing, but traditionalism, which is practicing tradition for the sake of tradition, didn't work for me at all. Um, And so, you know, the US was the perfect place because it questioned tradition. And, you know, at least at that time, the way I saw it, uh, you know, as a young person, I was like, yeah, that's where I want to be, you know, where people kind of make traditions as they go. Um, And the thing about traditional cultures is that traditions are placed above individuals. And I just could not make my peace with that at all. Um, For me, traditions are here to serve us. We are not here to serve traditions. And that, that was just clear absolutely in my head. And so it became a lot of struggle to kind of do things because that's the way things have been done. Um, and get this, and I, I come from a very progressive family, but you know, you live in a culture, family can protect you only so much. Uh, right. But the moment you step out, you know, you're facing the same thing. And your family faces the same pressures as well you know, of, of answering to tradition. So that was one thing. I also had experienced, you know, uh, not personally, but just politically seen how much, um, uh, how hard it is to uh, respond to different religions uh, in, in law. So when I was, you know, when I was young, there was this whole talk happening about, you know, how uh, we have a fairly large Muslim population, you know, uh, not in percentage, but just in numbers. And there was this happening in the legal system. Well, well should divorce laws be governed by uh, the Quran, uh, you know, of, you know, what's what's meaningful for people to practice the religion or that should there be a common law? Uh, for all Indians. Uh, and so the, I remember that. And I I love the idea of the separation of church and state. It's to me, again, it was kind of like, no, if there is freedom of religion, if people say you can practice whatever it is that you want to practice, then you cannot have a religion defined law by for everybody else, because then whose religion do you follow? 
right? So there were all of these things in the setup where I thought, wow, this is perfect. This, I want to go to there, (laughs) you know? Um, So uh, to me, it it was a natural fit. It was a really natural fit. And then um, even in California where, you know, California is identified as, you know, the part of the United States where um, the operating principle is live and let live. I love that. That, that, that speaks to me. That's, that's, that's pretty cool because, yeah, living in, uh, you know, when I've lived in the mid, Midwest, it was um, a lot of the policies were based on tradition. Yes. Um, and, and I was yearning to get back to California where, where it was, it, there's just a different, you know, a different mind, mindset. Um, now, as a, as a teen or when, when, when did you really think about teaching? Um, because, because as a, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to gather everything in which, in which you've been saying, um, it kind of fits with your philosophy of life mm-hmm. that now I want to teach, you know, and give and to, so, so when did, when did this start? So I can remember, you know, as furthest back as I can go, you know, everybody asks children, what do you want to be? What do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, it's, uh, uh, and I can remember, saying to people, I'm either going to be a teacher or a scientist. And wow. you can be both. And in my head, yes. <laughs> and in my head at the time, in my very, very young mind at that time, scientist was somebody with a lab coat and test tubes and mixing things and, you know, stuff coming out of it. That's who I wanted to be. The real experimenter kind of a thing. And I remember I had a little sort of easel stand with a chalkboard and it was really for me to draw as a young kid. And I would just place all my dolls in front of the the stand and pretend like I was a teacher. Um, Then, you know, then I kind of went here and there just kind of toying with ideas of different things. I remember when Raiders of the Lost Ark was released uh, and I was a teenager at the time and I just thought Harrison Ford was so cute and I wanted wanted to be an archaeologist for like two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, very teenage kind of a response there. Um, But then I came right back to, you know, something that had to do with, um, it had to do with society and making it better, which is not surprising. A lot of teenagers, I think, you know, have that sense of idealism that I want to do something that is impactful. Um, and um, I, my grandfather was a social activist. He was very active in the struggle for freedom um, and uh, was a loud advocate for people living in poverty and those who were mistreated in the world. And he, you know, so th- there was that sort of messaging that I grew up with and, you know, it kind of focused my attention on things that uh, we really, those of us who are fortunate 
um, should share our fortunes, that we have to use that power of good fortune to make things better for other people. And that that was that just resonated with my dad, who was a doctor, a physician. You know, he taught me um, just through the way he practiced. Um, I remember, you know, because he was always busy uh, and we used to, you know, I, used to, I remember telling him, Dad, why don't you like see patients by appointment? Because he had like walk-ins, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. And and it was like, you know, I could see he was burning himself out and all of us kids were like, Dad, you know, you, you've got to do this. And he just, you know, he, he said it so simply and he said, look, there are a lot of doctors um in, in our city, and uh, they all see patients by appointment. Uh, there are people uh, who live in our city who don't have a phone, uh, who get daily wages, and when they have to bring their family member, and he was a pediatrician for their, ch- their child to me, um, they lose that money for the day. If I make them make an appointment, um, you know, this this just no way they have access, and so uh, you know there was so all of the uh, you know the way I see things were shaped or I saw things were shaped by all of these ideas around me, and so I became interested or what grabbed me and which I thought was a real dilemma was uh, the issue of child labor because children were working and it was uh, against the law to or to have children work um, and I you know of course totally privileged I never had to think about working as a child um, I was like well you know all children should go to school of course uh, and then but there was the other thing also is that culturally what had happened was that children just joined into the profession or the work of the family. So if you were, if you grew up in a farming family, you just joined the activity. And at your level, you did whatever it was. And that was your education to get ready to take over the farm. And so it really didn't seem like a very clear cut. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, do, do you want to get rid of that tradition? What argument do I have to support getting rid of that practice. Um, and so that that was something that really drew me um, in, uh, in terms of, you know, just kind of the social things. Um, and of course, child nutrition. Um, you could see that, you know, you could save a lot of children if they just had food. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you, you bring up a really good point that, that harks me back to my, to my time spent in, Indiana, talking to teachers and educators, and teachers would would often share that they would get mad during 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 the um, crop seasons for the for the reason that kids kids would would be gone uh, because they were helping their parents out with their with their farm, and and the teachers were saying you know they should be in school, like, but. That's their livelihood. Yeah. You know, are there, you know, are we, are we going to ask parents to hire people, which now they're losing money, um, or have their child work, you know, when, and so I'm like, well, why, why can't you work with parents? 
Why can't you find ways in which using, you know, using the skills that they're doing, you know, how can we implement that within the, within their coursework? Yeah. Right. Like Um, truly understanding the culture of the family too, right? Not just, you know, the culture of society, but the family culture. And I mean, our, our school calendar is centered around farming communities, right? And we still have summers off for that reason. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting that we forget that. Yeah, and that and and you and you spurred that thought when when I was uh, when when you were talking about culture and and the um how yeah how you know I I my my family background is that my grandparents needed to have a lot of children mm-hmm. just to work. Yeah. Um you know, and so, so that's why I, you know, I have lots of aunts, aunts and uncles. Um, you know, it wasn't a matter of them wanting to have a big family, just to have a big family. It was, it was one of need, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it's interesting now how, at least in the U S we're getting away from that, you know, we're getting away from large families, but I, I know we're, here, here goes Fred again. Fred's going this way, <laughs> um, but I'm, but I, but I'm really interested. How, how do you tie this social activism, this social justice that you were raised with, which we could talk forever on it. Yes, yes. And so I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we've that that we made this connection. How do you parallel that to to the work that you're currently doing? And please, and you know, please, please tell us what you what you do today. So I am I am a professor uh, of child development at Cal State Dominguez Hills, and um, I'm currently teaching three courses. Um, you know, how do I do this? I think the work has to begin to me on myself. Really, it's it's. You have to, I have to change my internal paradigm for it to be reflected into the classroom. And it's a lot of work and it requires a lot of stamina, um, both intellectual and emotional stamina, I think. But I'm, I, you know, you know, right now we are talking about issues of equity um, and social justice. And there's a, there's a really good aspect for like a collective, you know, awareness um, and and the raising of those kinds of issues, but it becomes a wave, I, I feel, and a wave that just washes everything with it. Um, and so, what I'm trying to do is really differentiate what is an issue, what which of these issues are really equity issues, and which of the issues are not equity issues. Um, but, you know, as a teacher, you, you probably know this already, is that the, the perennial, uh, you know, uh, tightrope walk that you have to do is, on the one hand, we want to prepare our students for the field. But how do we make sure that we don't prepare them so or we don't focus so much on that preparation that we forget to harness their 
ability to imagine the world differently. And that's that's what I have, that's what I constantly have to do. And then in, in real terms, what it means is what what kind of decisions do you leave for students to make? And what kind of decisions you really are responsible for making as a as a faculty member, and you have to you should hang on to those because that's your job. <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, um, and it's not easy. It's not easy because um, students change from semester to semester. And so a group can really respond beautifully to, to the freedom, you know, that they have um, uh, or that it has. And then you run into a group that's just completely feels adrift without structure. Um, but... You know, there are so many things. I mean, we could have like part two, part three of this conversation just <laughs> talking about this one thing. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, this—I don't think there'd be any sort of doubt about. You know, people, our students need to see teachers who look like them. Right. At the same time, I don't want students to think that they cannot learn from people who don't look like them. Correct. And so it's again, you know, that, you know, I've learned from men and women. I've learned from older people and younger people. I've learned from children. I've learned from people who look completely different from each other, who have completely different perspectives. Um, and I try to tell my students, it's like a buffet. You, you, you take what works for you. Um, but, you know, um, so, you know, going back to equity issues and things like that, it's, it's a lot of just internal work. Um, but th- to me, the most important thing is get, get, rid, of, get rid of the rule book. <laughs> you have to. You just, you know, we do the, we do the dumbest things in, in, in service of rules. And, and, you know, they perpetuate. And the reason, my favorite um, educational philosopher is J. Krishnamurti. Um, and, you know, there are two things he said. Uh, one, uh, it's no measure of good health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's strong words, but it, it really hits the mark for me, is that don't just be adjusted to something that, you don't think is worthy of adjusting to. Uh, and, and the other thing you know, that he said was that um, tradition makes us feel safe, but a secure mind is a mind in decay. Um, and so you know, doing things that are familiar is very attractive and it's very easy and convenient to do things that are familiar. But yeah, if, we, if we can face the unfamiliar, we can do a lot of different things. So, for example, you know, we had a search, a faculty search, and I was thinking, well, how would I do this if I wanted to make sure that our, you know, implicit biases didn't, you know, play? Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, maybe um, we blank out the name of the person who is applying. So, you know, everything is now online. Um, and so if faculty affairs kind of said, okay, we're going to give you some abracadabra name, you know, something, some, something that doesn't make any meaning. Um, and we know, um, do we want to know if the person is male or female? Um, not really. Uh, you know, 
what's in the job description? Well, you have to have a PhD. Okay, so do you have a PhD? Uh, and then, you know, what, what's your experience in teaching? And it's just literally facts. You know, we don't see anything. We don't see where they graduated from. Um, and then we can, that's the only piece that suppose our search committee looks at and says, <clears throat> these are the ones that meet the basic requirements without seeing anything else on the data. Not where they published, not what they published, not who they published with, uh, you know, because that's where, again, it's tradition. You know, we're just attributing, oh, wow, this person is amazing. You know, if they published with this person, then, you know, in our heads, we, we've already sort of put them on a pedestal. Um, we don't want to know whether they graduated from an Ivy or not, or whatever it is. Um, and then we kind of start looking at, again, details, uh, but how do we kind of make ourselves blind to those things that make us biased? You know, um, so these, you know, these are the things that I'm kind of thinking about, especially if you think about equity and social justice, but in the classroom, boy, I mean, it has to be done collectively, I think, you know, I mean, I can do baby things in the classroom, but to reimagine teaching and learning completely, um, I'm going to need some company. <laughs> well, no, you, you bring up a great point because that was always my own challenge where I'm, I'm very much a social justice advocate. Um, and trying to teach in a, in a way where you're, where you're teaching what you, what you need to teach, but also in the, in the, in the back of my mind going, I need to create agents of change um, where, where every, every one of my teacher ed candidates coming, coming out of my, my classes need, need to really know that, that teaching is the best thing that they could do because every day they're, they can make or break kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, and so how, and so for, for some of my other colleagues, they didn't understand this. They didn't, they're like, well, just teach what you need to teach. You know, we just need to get them in and out. It's yeah. like, no, no, you know, that's, we don't, we don't want to do that. And so, um, that was, that was always the challenge. And I think for people like, like the three of us here, that's, that's one of those things that grinds us is, you know, this person, this candidate doesn't get it. They don't get it. You know, that, 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 that they're going to be working with kids. They're going to be working with families. They're going to be working with community members. Um, and they could, they could be those agents of change. Yeah. Um, and, and also the teaching is not about us. It is about children. Correct. That, you know, we're trying, we're saying we're trying to help children, but we are giving them help that we think they need, not what they are telling us they need, you know. Correct. Um, so within early, early childhood ed, because you were, you were saying that that's, that's, that's what you do. What are some things that you would wish the public to know? Fred, I might have to plead the fifth on this one. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is fine. Um, um, well, I would like the public to know um, that preschool is pre-school. It's not school. 
that that is absolutely something that the public has to know. You know, what worked about preschool was that we treated it like it was the bridge. You know, we helped children walk from home context into to school context. If we turn into, it into school, there is no bridge anymore. Yeah, that's a great point. And there is that is frightening to me for children as a child advocate is that, oh my goodness, no, that shouldn't happen. So uh, I want people to remember that it's preschool. Like don't put pressure on preschool teachers to teach children math and literacy. It is really about it is really about just getting oriented to what it means to be in school. But, you know, the other thing is that because quality early childhood education was play-based, it, it helped create a positive attitude towards school. Mm-hmm. And that is that, that sort of mindset that, you know, that just that orientation is so critical for children to do well in kindergarten. So we really need to leave preschool as preschool. The pre part is the operative term, not the school part. <laughs> so I, you know, I, and also that, uh, well, that's all I'd say, maybe. I mean, there, there are other things that, you know, I, I wish people knew, and that is that quality preschool education was most effective for children in poverty. Mm-hmm. That if if children from the middle and upper middle classes didn't even attend preschool, it wasn't going to make it's it doesn't make a difference at all mm-hmm. in how they do in kindergarten and rest. Um, yeah. Mostly because what what they have access to at home. But it it was most effective for children living in poverty because they got the attention, they got the preparation for school and the preparation in terms of, hey, there's a teacher, there's a person called a teacher and, you know, we have to sometimes wait for our turn um, and those things uh, and how to wait for your turn and how to say things so that, I mean, you know, if you go back to, for example, Head Start and why it was separate from school, yeah, (laughs) it was because, you know, people really did find that Kindergarten teachers had these implicit biases against children living in poverty, and especially children of color living in poverty. And they they didn't even realize that they were responding to children in ways that they didn't want to respond to them. And that's why we kept preschool separate so that we gave children a chance to kind of make that transition and and just value them for who they were. But they got we got them ready for kindergarten, but really for the school environment. You know, and so we shouldn't forget that history because there's there are so many lessons to be learned over there. And uh, it, to me, it's just kind of interesting that we're talking about equity and forgetting that lesson. Yeah, that's um, really good, really good points. I'm glad you emphasized the preschool part because I feel like we yeah. as a society feel like, oh, our education system is falling behind, so that means we need to start it sooner. But they forget that we have designed this system around childhood development, right? Yes. They're developmental yeah. stages, and that's yeah. why... At certain ages, they're given certain tasks and certain c- curriculum. Um, yeah. 
in your experience, where have you yeah. seen the field change in the last 10 years? And, and perhaps what would you like to see? Um, so my sense of what has changed in the field is has been really, first of all, the unifying of different pieces and places of early childhood education. Um, and just the growing awareness, the fact that even our elected representatives were talking about universal pre-K, that was a big, I think, change um, that uh, shined the light on the importance of uh, early childhood education. So that to me was big. We, we've always been doing work. Uh, you know, early childhood education has a long history. We've been doing research. Um, what I loved about early childhood education was that we were not in the limelight. Um, and what it did was that it allowed teachers to fail. That teachers could fail in their experimentation without fear, without somebody watching them. And that's why we made so much progress, that all the progress that we did. Um, when I teach about you know, what we do in early childhood, so I, I'm teaching a class called Development in Diverse Contexts, and the purpose of it really is to help um, uh, students see the diversity of contexts and, and the related developmental outcomes. And the fact that you know, I keep reminding them, remember, you're going to be working with children who come from everywhere, and you have to prepare for that. So, you know, the, the thing about, um, uh, and so when, I'm, when I talk to them about diversity and, you know, what we have learned about gender by trying this and trying that, and what we have learned about ability and disability by trying this and trying that in early childhood, a common and a repeated question I get is, why are we not doing this in kindergarten? Why do we stop, professor? And I'm like, I don't know why we stop. Um, but uh, yeah, so the thing is, we, we have been doing this, um, and I hope that it continues. I hope that we, we maintain that context where teachers are allowed to fail. Yeah. When we really put, when we say, you know, failure is a part of success, we have to really practice it. Um, so, but that's what, you know, to answer your question about 10 years, I would say awareness and unification. Um, and you know the light shining on it, uh, part of it, and the, the conversations around quality um, and what is quality. Uh, those were the big things. Um, yeah, and I, if if you think about where where, where do we want to go, uh, I really want to get away from standardization. You know, it's what yes. keeps us. It, we, you know, on the one hand, we say we have to respond to children's needs. You know, children uh, in Carson are very different, might be facing very different sort of, um, uh, they might have different needs than children who are growing up in Santa Monica, you know, even there. Um, and you know, what, what are we doing to equip teachers to respond to those differences? And you're not gonna be able to codify it in any document. So I, that's the only thing that I would say is that, you know, turn the knob down a little lower on, on the standardization 
and a little bit more, you know, we have such a great chance to shape the context. And if we put things in the context that allows and supports teachers to, to really do what we want them to do, I think that would be great. Yeah, I mean, we preach differentiation in yes. our classrooms, but then we measure how well we do on standardization. <laughs> I mean, well, it's not just Doesn't the best make any thing, sense. but, you know, that here's a book, teachers, follow it. Right. You know, that's that's kind of like, wait a second. Yeah. You know, where's, where's the creative part? Right. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, we... We, when there's so much when we talk about poverty and you know we keep saying well you know if teacher if schools don't have money then or resources that's really the issue but what message it sends to teachers is that if you don't have the resources you think you should have not not if you think you should not the ones that you think you should have the ones that other people have then you cannot do good work and I don't think that that is true you know and that's what I really loved about learning. I learned that lesson in India because, you know, as, a, as an undergraduate student, my exam, there was an oral exam also to get your bachelor's in child development and early childhood education. There were four of my professors sitting in the classroom and we had to go to every table and answer a question. Wow. Um, and I, the one that I remember was, you know, there were a bunch there were a bunch of twigs and rocks in front of me. And my question, the question to me was, here's some material. I want you to design an activity for children that will stimulate logical, mathematical thinking in preschoolers. And we have five minutes. Wow. The, the, you know, we have to emphasize that the real, the real resource is in our cranium. And we have to be resourceful. And we can do a lot for young children without, you know, the the bells and whistles that we think we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that's the part, you know, when I meant I was saying standardizing, uh, that's what I was really kind of alluding to is that it's not a recipe. So I'm... I'm 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 listening and I'm and I have so I'm and I have so many hats on. <laughs> that is um, one of them is uh, one of the things that I would that that I enjoy doing um, is is working with faculty with research and tenure promotion blah 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 all that I I, I love working with them. Um, so what are you researching now? Um, or what's on your, because I, I, I could see a lot of different things like, well, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this. So, so what are you, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually, um, so my interest has been in social cognition. How do children think and reason about social phenomena? Um, and specifically, you know, that's, that's a pretty big question. Uh, but under that big umbrella, I've been looking at how children resolve conflicts with each other. And what I'm doing right now, so I, I did a study in the United States, and I, I have data from India, from Indian children. 
uh, about how they, you know, their conflicts with their friends and what happened and how it got resolved or didn't. Um, and I'm writing that I, up that paper, so I'm looking. At, I, I have the data. I'm writing it up and uh, seeing some interesting things. Um, I, and it it really kind of seems to me that now. Uh, what really separates us or makes us different is class, not culture. Um, because they were, you know, the children in both of the countries, from both countries, were um, um, middle and upper middle class. And they really, there's a lot of concordance in how they think about um, uh, conflicts with friends. There are, of course, going to be differences, uh, but they didn't seem substantial enough. Um, and so then my next step is I, I do want to go into a different class context and see if there are any differences there. Um, I also want to look at the development of the self, the sense of self, and how that relates to how people respond in conflict situations. So I have some initial data on it, and then I'm following it up. But even though I'm passionate about early childhood education, I'm actually studying school-aged children, mostly because they're, they are at a higher level of language development, so they can communicate thoughts, uh, complicated thoughts more easily. Um, and there's a lot happens in, uh, a lot changes in social cognition in, in middle childhood. So that's what I'm focusing on. And then a bigger question is, Is that which is socially desirable necessarily socially competent? And in children's world, it isn't. You know, we don't want to accept that because we all know, we all feel, you know, as grown-ups, <laughs> that we know what what's best and how in terms of how children should behave. But we don't really know their world and um, what is competent and what is going to help them adapt is not necessarily desirable as defined by us. Interesting. Wow. That sounds really good work, like really um, impactful work that can be utilized by a lot of educators. Um, yeah, I mean, we could probably talk for many hours about all of these things, but being respectful of your time and um, our next podcast, uh, we, we always ask our guests what their call to action is. And this mm -hmm. is the one thing that you would like our listeners to take away from you. So what is your call to action? Find your happy. Oh. I like it. I, find your happy and trust your journey. Yeah. I, you know, I just... I, don't let anybody tell you what should make you happy. You know what makes you happy. you got to chase it and you got to... Just stay on it, mm -hmm. but you've got to find your happy. I like that. Yeah. That's, yeah, as I, you know, as I shared, that could be a t-shirt. <laughs> Fred likes to make t-shirts out of the call to actions from our, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from our guests. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks for sharing all of your good work and your perspectives. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and thank you for also all the good work. I, I saw everything that you're doing um, on your website and um, I'm, I'm assuming you'll pick up a 
start doing a lot of things once this pandemic is really gone. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Thank you.